Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Amanda Rizkala. Amanda is Assistant Professor of International Studies at Pepperdine University. I'm really excited to talk to Amanda as someone who's done a great deal of work on Lebanon and, and the role of sect-based identities within the fabric of, of the Lebanese political system. So, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. So, so let's start as we always do, Amanda, if we may, please. Um, what, what got you interested in politics and, and working on the region? Oh, wow, that's a long story. Um, I'll be very brief, though. Um, my family is actually Lebanese originally, um, and I um, kind of grew up frequently visiting the south, the deep south of Lebanon, which is where my father is from. Um, he is from a small village, kind of very close to the Unifil compound, actually, and um, just politics was always a part of my family's daily life because it um, dramatically influenced their day-to-day activities, where they could live, whether they had to flee, who was governing them. Um, and so those visits, over the course of those visits, I kind of became very curious about my family's history and um all kinds of things about how Christians and Hezbollah kind of coexist in south, southern Lebanon, how mm. people in the south rebuilt after many years of civil war and um, Israeli occupation. Um, so, yeah, so my my own family's experience and their kind of environment um, got me interested in politics and uh, the rest is history, basically. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about that history, if if that's okay, Amanda. So, so you went, you spent some time back in Lebanon. You became increasingly interested in the the family history and what it was uh, so about. I, um, yeah. So I, I was the thing that actually interested me the most was kind of how it was possible or under what conditions it was successful or not successful to kind of bring a community back together after something like the Lebanese Civil War. Right. So I became kind of interested in questions of peace building, but not just kind of on a national level and in terms of institutions, but peace building at the local level of how, how neighbors get along with each other after conflict. And so, um, I majored in political science as an undergraduate, but then when I and I actually pursued it a PhD right after um, my undergraduate in political science as wow. well. Okay, and I I realized that um, I just was really interested in this question of legacies of civil war and mm. how um, how fighting the war and kind of what happened at the local level during a war kind of shaped politics afterwards and shaped identity afterwards. Um, and, you know, my, obviously my family inspired that interest, but it became kind of much larger than that eventually. Sure. Um, yeah. um, what what prompted this this interest in, in the particular sort of localized manifestation of peace building? Was there a particular incident or was it just the sort of the routine experience that you were going through? Yes, I think I think often sometimes when you, um, you know, you, you read the headlines about Lebanon 
or especially you did at that time in, in the 90s and the early 2000s, it just always felt like kind of doom and gloom. Mm. And But when you were on the ground, it was kind of, it was really intriguing how, um, you know, this party, this organization that in the West is, you know, labeled a terrorist organization, Hezbollah, um, was actually very pragmatic in how it uh, dealt with cr- the Christian minority in the South um, and kind of just a lot of the um, live and let live arrangements that there were and actually the kind of dense social relationships that existed between leaders of different groups that you wouldn't think maybe would get along or they had arrangements, at least informal ones, to kind of let each other be and to cooperate on some things. Um, And so I just, I was intrigued with the nuance and with the kind of the the stories that you don't hear in the headlines. And a lot of that was at the local level because the national level was so polarized and antagonistic in Lebanon and, you know, and it's very hard to talk about anything kind of nuanced (laughs) at the national level. Um, But in terms of, yeah, I just was interested in what was actually happening at the local level and kind of, um, although my dissertation was not about cooperation, I'd always been interested in um, those kind of glimmers of hope of um, people cooperating and people doing something that kind of subverted the expectations of what they would be doing based on what their identity group Sure, yeah. Um, and I think that this project with Rand um, that I just co- we completed recently um, was kind of an opportunity to do that, uh, to kind of think about um, the kind of quote unquote successes of cross-sectarian mobilization or just non-sectarian mobilization in a context like Lebanon. Yeah, of course. And just, I, yeah. I hope we'll get on to the Rand report um, soon. Well, we should do unless something dramatic happens. Um, <laughs> I, but before we do, Amanda, you, you talked a little bit about those those little um, sort of nuances and the little agreement that took place at the local level. Can you give us a couple of examples of that then, please, just to bring it to life? Sure. Um, so for, let's say, in, in southern Lebanon, which is where my family, uh, you know, my father's family is originally from, um, there's a lot of intentional, let's say, uh, social network building among kind of leaders or, um, you know, well-respected members of the Shia and the Christian communities in Southern Lebanon, where, you know, there will be an intentional kind of at, you know, funerals, at uh, weddings, at important kind of these these socially important markers in family and community life. Um, there's a lot of very deliberate attendance of each other's occasions by kind of cross-sectarian leaders and respected people in the community. Um, And part of that is to kind of demonstrate um, an ability to coexist, but also to kind of strengthen social ties in, in in view of the rest of the community. So that's like kind of a, a small example um, another one that kind of was, is very personal to me is that there was, um, you know, he's retired now, but, um, there was a period of time where one of my family members had deliberately gone into business with, um, one, he was Christian, one other Christian partner and two Shia partners. Um, 
and, and kind of started a, a business together. And part of that kind of stemmed from their friend, their lifelong friendships. But part of that had to do with kind of their belief that if the um, economic fates of both communities were tied together, that when a sectarian pressures and, you know, the, the region around them kind of flared up, that they would be able to kind of resist, you know, breaking apart into kind of and retreating into sectarian enclaves if their economic fates were tied together. Um, and so that that's kind of another example of people actually pursuing those business relationships, even though other people maybe advised them not to yeah. or felt that it was risky. That's it's fascinating. Can you can you tell us a bit about why you think these types of things were able to take place then, given the 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 legacy of conflict that you you flagged up, and given the the I guess the normative orderings that were taking place that would would almost prevent this from happening on a larger scale. Yes, um, I mean I do think that part of it is the 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 free wheelingness of Lebanon. <laughs> right. In that, okay. In that the state is uh, is is remarkably absent from certain places. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's not a state whose influence extends to kind of every nook and corner of society. Um, and I think in some ways that's bad because there is a bad provision of public services and, um, you know, government doesn't function very well in terms of, you know, providing a social safety net or enforcing the law or things like that, things that are obvious. But one of the kind of um, unexpected positives of a weaker state is that there's actually a little bit more, um, I would say, freedom, just freedom of assembly, freedom of kind of, you know, to um, to kind of do your own thing socially and, and to kind of cooperate or, you know, on, on a small scale, at least, and in no way that threatens the system as a whole. Um, you know, there, there's room to do that, that I think maybe doesn't exist in a lot of other Arab countries. That's um, really interesting. Is that, do you think, a consequence of, of the the unique nature of Lebanese politics and the, the nature of the Lebanese state and the experiences of war and, and post-conflict so. experience? I, I think so. I think it's two parts. Is the, the definitely the the fact that sectarian identity and this power sharing is enshrined in the constitution and in the um, or sorry, not in the constitution, but just in the kind of the post war system and actually in the pact that founded Lebanon. There is like this strong kind of sense that no group should really overpower another. Now, of course, there are some players that are more powerful than others in real life, but at least the the kind of political discourse and the, the social kind of what's socially acceptable is that, yes, we are different, but we're supposed to kind of coexist and we're supposed to, um, you know, we're Lebanese and, and we're okay with each other. And that's right. Kind of, you know, and we, we are diverse and that's kind of who we are and we can't change that. So there's like, there's a little bit of a tolerance of just the fact that it's a really um, diverse place and you're not going to try to <laughs> yeah. stamp out other groups. Sure. Um, I think another part of it is that the, you know, legacy of conflict in Lebanon is it's a remarkably war weary place in some ways. Um, but I think that that's, 
been an overall positive thing in the years since the end of the Civil War because, you know, I, I think some analysts would be very surprised at the fact that Lebanon has not descended into chaos, into true chaos at any point between 1991 and now. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there was the 2008 kind of skirmishes in Beirut, mm-hmm. and there was, um, you know, the, the threat of the Syrian civil war spilling over, and, and all of those could have become much larger things. Um, and I think the the kind of unsung positive story about Lebanon is that there has been, I think, some sense of learning from the past that this is very costly to actually start a war. And, and, you know, that people still remember the costs of that. And I, I, I don't think that you can completely discount that as a factor. Mm. That, it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I've had conversations with Lebanese friends who would say, well, look, perhaps we need to stop viewing Taif and power sharing in a negative way and think, well, you know what, it's actually helped keep the peace. So it's yeah. a success. But it seems like you're you're suggesting that there's more of an agency approach here that that people who remember the experiences and r- can can put their finger on the the human cost of conflict to p- pushing back more than the structural dimensions. Yeah, I mean, I think oh, I very much buy the structural story. So I, I wouldn't say that what I'm saying is in opposition to that at all. In fact, my dissertation is kind of about that structural story. <laughs> right. Okay. How, how the power sharing agreement kind of helps keep the peace, even though it's deeply flawed. Um, but I, I, I do think that, yeah, I think it, it, I think it's both. I think that there is some agency of people kind of, you know, instances of communities really trying to kind of cool things down when, uh, when it seems like people are about to, certain actors or cert, especially people affiliated with certain um you know, politicians, whatever, are, are, you know, wanting to kind of, um, you know, heat things up yeah. or start something. I think that there's like an overwhelming kind of consensus, I think, among the population that maybe um, it's better not to go there. But then I actually agree with the structural story. I think the politicians themselves don't really want to see a conflict in Lebanon either. And so they kind of strategically like, you know, hold back and try to kind of calm down any of their supporters that may have been wanting to escalate something. I think I think they escalate and de-escalate things for, you know, their political reasons, mm-hmm. but that ultimately nobody wants to see another civil war. Sure. Yeah, of course. Amanda, you've talked about power sharing being a paradox. Can yes. you explain what you mean by that, please? So, um... I think the be- the best way to describe it is that, you know, when it, when in the context of Lebanon, that that power sharing can be this kind of um, imperfect but workable solution that brings about stability, and that uh, that truly brings about the end of a conflict. Because at the end of the day, if the the armed actors that you know have the power to kind of spoil a peace effort if they don't believe that they have something to gain from a peace, then they're not going to be cooperative with it. And they actually might sabotage it. Um, cause if they feel like they can gain more from continuing the conflict. And so I think it is important to just be realistic and to acknowledge that power sharing agreements are intriguing and they are kind of successful in that they, 
can bring everybody to the table and and give armed actors a stake in the success of the piece and in doing so bring about stability. Now, it's a paradox because on the other hand, it's um, that same power sharing agreement and the same attributes of that agreement that promotes stability are the things that make the system fragile. Yeah. Um, beca- because you're going to keep politics... Um, kind of divided according to kind of the the sides of the civil war or according to these kind of identity groups um, or political groups that have a lot of baggage and, you know, attached to them. Um, And so because of that, the system is always fragile to kind of a reignited conflict between those same (laughs) actors, but also it's very tempting for outside powers to kind of use the fact that the system is one of power sharing and one of kind of, um, you know, decentralized power among many groups to kind of meddle and, and kind of bring, um, or to kind of to adopt one of those groups as their proxy or as their kind of, um, you know, kind of agent in the country. And yeah. so, um, yeah, it's kind of a tricky thing because I, I think that people that say that the power sharing system in Lebanon is just a wholesale, a terrible thing, I think are um, a little bit naive about what, what the alternative is or what, what the alternative could have been um, to, for Lebanon. But And then those that sing its praises, I think, are a little naive about all the costs that have come with it and um, all the ways that it's hobbled Lebanese politics and kept it kind of dysfunctional and um, and the country weak. You know? yeah. So it's like an imperfect solution. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a, probably a good way of putting it, an imperfect solution, but one that's, that's doing a job of keeping peace, albeit uh, not doing much more than that, let's say. Right, exactly. Yes. So, Amanda, within this this political system, you've you've talked about there being room for maneuver, mm-hmm. um, and one of the the things that that I I had down to talk to you about was this this report that you contributed to the the Rand report, countering sectarianism in the Middle East. Now you've written a a really fascinating chapter for this um, titled "Transcending Sectarian Politics: The Case of Beirut Medinati," and it it's a really interesting piece. Um, those of you that haven't read it, I strongly urge you to do so, because it flags up a number of the issues that, that we're interested in here in SEPAD, the desectarianization of politics, etc. But before we get into it, could you just tell those, uh, could you tell us a, a bit about it, what you were trying to do, please, for anyone who's not had a chance to read it yet? Sure. Um, so this piece is part of a kind of a larger project um, with Rand that was basically trying to um, take kind of the literature about um, sectarian and sectarian politics, but also the literature on ethnic politics, and kind of turn it turn it on its head a little bit. I think a lot of the academic literature um, is concerned with where these identities come from, how they are mobilized, um, what kind of causes sectarian conflict. Um, and, and, and in this project, we really wanted to say, okay, well, we kind of have a really good idea now of what causes this conflict uh, or this type of conflict or the multiple factors, you know, whether they're economic or social, historical, um, you know, 
take your pick kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we want to move past that and look at, okay, well, what are the factors that might um, help kind of reduce sectarian tensions or promote cross-sectarian cooperation? Um, and so, and, and we realized that we didn't actually have a lot of answers there. And so the volume is really just um, different people that do research on different countries in the region that have a sectarian divide politically, um, kind of looking for, um, it, like an intentional looking for the, uh, the bright spots or the cases of cooperation and then trying to inductively understand, okay, wh what were the conditions that um, made that cooperation possible? Um, and so really trying to put a positive spin on kind of, um, you know, studying sectarianism, because I think mostly it's a negative story. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so some authors looked at um, geography and how, how um, and urban planning and how certain towns were settled, for example. Um, and in my project, I looked at Beirut Medinati and kind of like a, a cross time view of um, how is it that it was possible in the context of Lebanese politics, which is so much organized according to sect, that, um, that a group like this could emerge. And so the paper is really trying to kind of trace back what are the things that made a, you know, a movement like this possible? Sure. And so, um, and I think that the answers are twofold. So you want to think about it as partly the answer lies in the history of the kind of civil society movements that have emerged in Lebanon since the end of the civil war and kind of, um, want to, you know, you do really see that Beirut Medineti is not something that appeared out of thin air, but is the culmination of many years of work and of different networks um, of university-based kind of uh, non-sectarian kind of activists and um, others working on, you know, hot button issues um, like, let's say, you know, removing uh, religion from people's identity cards, you know, something very specific like that. And then others who were kind of in that generation that grew up in the war and um, were really part of urban renewal movements in Beirut after that. Um, and so it's it's interesting because the trash crisis kind of creates this moment where, you know, who doesn't, who wants trash piling up outside their door? Like there's a confluence <laughs> yeah. of, you know, everybody realizes that um, this is an urgent problem that needs to be dealt with. And no matter our political differences or, you know, where we come from, we all would like to see this problem solved. And so it kind of um, created a focal point for all those different parts of civil society to organize and to and then um, the failures ultimately of that, of the youth stink protest movement, you know, were. Um, you know, there was like an interesting soul searching that happened after that. And a lot of people kind of in the movement, especially influential people, recognize that, you know, we can always bang on the door from the outside, but the way to change policy is if we are the ones in in power. And, um, and so kind of there was this huge, I think, shift in the sense that 
we need to actually contest elections rather than just be protesters. And we need to provide a positive alternative for voters rather than just be a critical voice, which is the traditional space of activists. So I think so. part of the story is that um, the evolution of civil society in Lebanon. But the other part of the story is also, you know, uh, maybe things that are actually much less like uh, in the control of people who are interested in seeing um, a reduction in sectarian tensions. And it's that, you know, the major sectarian actors in Lebanon, in particular, um, the relevant actor for Beirut proper, which was the district in which Beirut's Medineti um, can, you know, ran, was the future movement. And the future movement run by um, um, Hariri was really embattled at that time, kind of financially embattled and losing support from its traditional external patrons, Saudi Arabia. And, um, and the other part is just it's good timing in the sense, I mean, it, they still didn't win the election, but that it shows that you do need kind of shifts in the big picture to have something like this be even remotely have, have or even remotely have a chance of success. And you have to have the traditional sectarian actors be um, weakened in some way. And in this case, it was mostly financially. Yeah. Kind of, um, yeah. So. It's, Really yeah, interesting. And, story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's fascinating to to hear this this story and this account. I mean, it's it it speaks so much to, to a lot of the work that we've been doing recently on on desectarianization, by which we mean the the reimagining of the role of of religious identities within political projects and this this transformation of of political life from identities to, to issue base. And that, that seems to be a really clear example here in the case yes. of Beirut uh, Medinati. Definitely. And I should say that even though, you know, they didn't win the election, um, it was kind of remarkable to see that the you know traditional sectarian parties had to kind of start modifying their rhetoric and to kind of um, start to include some, policy proposals and, you know, actual issue-based discussion in their campaigns, you know, things about sanitation or roads or public transportation. I mean, this is a local election after all. So um, those are the big ticket items for a local election. And, and, and so, you know, a positive that does come out of this is that, yeah, the discourse, even among sectarian actors had to shift at the, you know, in the last few weeks of the campaign. So it didn't radically transform, but it, it took on more of an issue-based uh, sheen, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And um, and even now, Beirut Medinati kind of did not kind of fall apart after the election, which was, I think, a concern of some. Yeah. Um, but it, it is basically continuing to kind of work on the ground and, and, ha- and has, you know, kind of reformed itself um as an organization that's more sustainable. And part of what they do now is they have like a shadow municipality for Beirut that is, um, that, you know, just kind of asks for budgets, which they're legally allowed to do and, and tries to hold, um, the current municipal municipality kind of accountable um, to, to actually delivering something for voters. Um, yeah. So it strikes me that, that groups such as, um, Beirut Madinati 
have a have a, a fundamental issue that they need to reconcile very very quickly and that's concerning their their actions whether they want to operate within the political system or yes. or beyond it so how yes. did how did Beirut Madinati address this this dilemma so this was actually probably from from the kind of interviews the anonymous interviews that I conducted with um kind of leaders and, and members of the organization, um, multiple people flagged this as kind of the the issue that uh, threatened to tear the whole campaign apart even before the election, which was um, whether to um, put forward a full list for every kind of municipal seat for Beirut or whether to, um, let's say, create alliances with actors that were more acceptable, um, you know, that maybe, um, you know, some traditional actors, maybe some, some traditional local elites, um, that would allow, that would allow them to potentially win some seats, but at the cost of, um, cooperation with some establishment figures. Mm. Um, and, and so, and so some people in the organization wanted to kind of make that compromise and say, no, we'll just put up a few seats and that'll, you know, and, and basically that creates room for some other establishment figures to take other seats. And, um, and, and maybe if we kind of enter a pact or something, it, you know, we actually can get people into the municipality and, um, and it, it does really seem that if they had gone that route, they probably would have gotten a few seats. Wow, um, yeah. Yes. So, but they chose to kind of say no and to um, not cooperate with any establishment figures and to not kind of, you know, the, the voting system in Lebanon is kind of remarkably arcane. There are these people called electoral keys um, who are kind of, like local, I don't know, elders or leaders that kind of say, well, I have like 300 people's votes kind of in my control and they kind of sell those votes to different actors. It sounds crazy, right? You know, but... Right, yeah. Uh, yes, so so, so Beirut Madinati kind of chose to forego working with any of these kind of um, lower level political operatives that could have helped them, Um and so by, by kind of choosing a completely uncompromising stance and just kind of going grassroots completely and having no one from no establishment figures locally or at the national level kind of be allied with them, they, um, they potentially cost themselves the election, but kept their image as like something completely new and, um, and untainted by, you know, past politics. Sure. It's it's really interesting to reflect on what if I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm sure they're asking that <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, exactly. Amanda, we've taken up so much of your time already, but if I may ask you one final question, and and that is, where do you see Lebanese politics going in the next three to five years? Do you see more organisations such as Beirut Madinity emerging, or? Or do you see the the renaissance of the the current organizational structures, the sect based um, parties, and and other things like that surviving? Um, so I think we didn't even talk about it because I haven't personally written on it. But you know, in the in the year after the municipal elections, there was a parliamentary election, and um, some members of Beirut Madinati chose to create. 
um, kind of national level organizations that were distinct from Beirut's Madinati, but of course related in spirit um, and, and kind of band with other civil society candidates to present non-sectarian alternatives at the national level. And they fielded something like 60 some candidates and only one of them won. But, um, but I think that sent a message that, and I think maybe this is the optimist in me, that this is the beginning, this is not the end. Um, of this kind of organizing in Lebanon. Now, I am, I am still skeptical of, you know, whether it can actually change national politics in any meaningful way. Um, I think that, I think that barring some massive thaw between Saudi Arabia and Iran and the resolution of the Syrian civil war and kind of the, the end of all these kind of regional pressures that press on Lebanon. Um, I, I just, I don't see massive changes in the way that, you know, politics as, as usual goes on. But I do think that Beirut Medinati was intriguing because it said, okay, we're just going to table national politics because we really can't do much about that. Yeah. And instead, we're going to try to work for concrete, um, measurable, positive outcomes at the local level. Like, how do we improve the road system in Lebanon or how do we improve trash collection? You know, there's, there's a myriad of things that you can do without kind of touching um, sensitive national political issues. And I think... I think I tend to agree with a lot of the members of Beirut Medinati that that really is the hope for kind of change, at least in the medium term, because it's hard to imagine the system in Lebanon changing in any fundamental way yeah. in the next few years. Of course. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for, for giving us your time today. It's been really fascinating talking to you and and it's raised a great many questions that I have and... <laughs> I guess we'll have to do a follow-up another time. I, I hope we can talk more about sure. these issues. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Yes. Um, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.